May the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. In uh, February of 2016, scientists confirmed the discovery and the detection of gravitational waves. Do you remember this? Seven years ago? Yes, no. Some of you do. Um, in case you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, quick summary. Uh, for a long time, we operated under the assumption that time was absolute, which means it was the same for everyone, everywhere, no matter what speed you're traveling, etc., etc. Time was consistent. But then this guy comes along, Einstein, and Einstein's theory reshaped our thinking about the universe and put an end to our view of absolute time, at least for now. Uh, so instead of a universe that was rigidly structured and static, not moving, we began to conceive of a universe that was dynamic and could flex. Even time itself, Einstein theorized, was pliable. Now, as part of Einstein's theory, objects with strong gravity that accelerate to high speeds leave ripples of space in their wake. It's not like light or energy traveling within space. It's ripples of the space-time continuum itself. Mind blown yet? Try to imagine a world where time doesn't progress and space itself moves. I don't mean mass or energy within space, but the space we occupy moves. It's hard to imagine, right? So seven years ago, we got the announcement that scientists heard a chirp. Heard a chirp. A noise that lasted only a fleeting moment. And the chirp came from two massive black holes that collided and formed a new black hole 62 times the mass of our sun. The ripple of gra gravitational waves, that is the bending of space from that massive collision, reached Earth in September of 2015. Here's the incredible part, at least it is for me. The collision was 1.3 billion light years away from us. That's the time it would take light to travel from that collision to Earth, 1.3 billion years. We heard it. It's incredible that we even have the technology to hear it, right? And the more we learn about our world, the more confident we tend to be standing in it. The more we discover, the more we believe there are fewer barriers that eventually won't be overcome. Just think about how our technology has advanced in our lifetimes. 
I remember when my grandparents were amazed at the invention of the touch-tone telephone. It replaced that crazy old rotary phone. Kids, aren't you glad we don't have to use a rotary phone anymore? Oh, yeah. You say that every time you look at your smartphone, right? Oh, thank God I don't have to use that rotary phone. I remember the rotary phone. It took forever. Five. Zero. You didn't want a zero in the number. It took forever for that thing to come around. If you don't know what a rotary phone is, ask anyone over 45 here. We'll be able to help you out. And now I speak to my phone. Now as I'm driving down the car, I can speak to my car and my phone and have them do things for me. There was a time when an infection was a death sentence. There was a day when it was feared AIDS would wipe out much of the Earth's population. But our knowledge about ourselves and our world grows and has grown to such an extent that we are growing in confidence. Confidence to overcome the next great challenge, whatever it might be. But even though there's reason to be confident, and I like confidence when it comes to solving the world's problems. I, I want more. There's also great reason to be humble. We can be completely confident and entirely humble at the same time. Why? Because even with the detection of gravitational waves, there is so much more that we don't know and we can't explain. And science won't ever be able to explain, like, for example, why we're all here in the first place, to name one. And it seems that each time that we think we've got it nailed down, we discover something else that changes our understanding. It's as if the more we know, the more the mystery deepens. And so we stay humble. Now, this model of being completely confident and utterly humble is one that I would suggest we use for reading Ephesians 1. The curtain in Ephesians 1 is being pulled back by the Apostle Paul just a bit to see what God has done behind the scenes, and it is mind-blowing, cosmic, worldview-altering stuff. It's gravitational wave-like. We're being told truths and realities that give us knowledge and confidence and assurance. In this text, Paul assures us that we are not cosmic accidents. And that God is up to something that will make our lives worthwhile. But it's also truth that should keep us completely humble and dependent on God. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. See, we didn't have anything to do with it. God chose us apart from any goodness of our own. God determines to be the God who will choose on his own accord to love us in Christ. And God initiates his electing, destining love 
from eternity. That is, within his own being, apart from the world. That's all the pre and predestination means here. It's just an eternal initiative on God's part. On God's part alone. And the word we give to this is grace. This is what it means for God to save sinners because sinners don't save themselves. God has to be the one acting. God has to be the one initiating. And before we were ever here, he determined to be that God. For you. For you. Now, the narrative that you'll learn in school and that you'll breathe in our culture is that you are a meaningless cosmic accident who has to self-create if you're going to have any meaning in life. It's all up to you. It's what you do with your own life. You decide your own identity. You create your own success. You make your own significance and on and on and on. And if you approach life that way, you know what's true about you? You're never quite satisfied. You're never really happy. It's never quite enough. You always have to have more. But this text is saying that all of that burden of self-creation is taken away from you and instead is given to you as a gift. And now your identity, Paul says in Ephesians 1, is beloved of God. That's it. I think this is probably a good thing we need to say to ourselves right now. When life is getting very burdensome, when things are outside of our control, when we are frustrated and angry, when we drive around this city and we get worked up when we listen to our family member and we become more and more frustrated, the phrase that should ring in our ear on a regular basis is, when it's all said and done, I am beloved of God. He has determined to be the God who loves me in Jesus Christ. And he determined that before the creation of the world. Mind blowing. God is relentless in his determination to get to you. He loves you that much. For many years, uh, Tom Torrance was, T.F. Torrance was professor of theology at New College, University of Edinburgh. He was also an ordained Presbyterian minister and one time the moderator of the Church of Scotland. Uh, he's probably the greatest theologian Scotland's ever produced, including, I would say, the reformer John Knox. Torrance was relentless in his focus on Jesus Christ as the center of God's relation to the world, as the center of both the history and the future of the world. And he had a lot to say about Ephesians and the themes that we hear in Ephesians, but I want to share one quote that is particularly powerful and just incredibly encouraging. Now, Torrance's writing can be a little dense, so I'm going to go a little slower. I'm going to emphasize some words so that you hear it, okay? Here's what he says. God loves you so utterly and completely 
that he has given himself for you in Jesus Christ, his beloved Son, and has thereby pledged his very being as God for your salvation. In Jesus Christ, God has actualized his unconditional love for you. What he means by actualized is, this is not a theory, this is not a word floating around somewhere. This is flesh and blood. It is actual within space and time. In Jesus, he has actualized his unconditional love. Love becomes real, personal. In Jesus, he's actualized his unconditional love for you in your human nature in such a once-for-all way, get this, that he cannot go back upon it without undoing the incarnation and the cross and thereby denying himself. End of quote. God cannot stop loving you so utterly and completely because God cannot stop being God. If God were to let you go, if God were to turn you away, if God were to remove his love for you, Torrance is saying, then he would stop being God because he has connected his very life, his very being, with you. What an incredible thought. God doesn't throw up his hands and quit on you, on our world for that matter. If he did, Torrance is saying, God wouldn't be the same God we need in Jesus. So really, when we put it like that, he can't deny himself. He can't give up on you. You tracking? I hope so. Here's another way of seeing it in this text. Notice what Paul says over and over and over again. He says, all of God's intention to bless the world is, in this little phrase, in Christ. He has done all of this in Christ. He's poured out his blessing in Christ. He has predestined you in Christ. He has elected you. He has poured out his love on you in Christ. That is, his electing love is his election of Jesus to be God with us and God for us. And God doesn't deny his own son or else he deny himself. So the blessing of God's salvation to us is unfailing because it's centered in his son and his son can never not be God. That's why we keep on talking about him over and over and over again. And we talk about following him all the way to the end of our life. And we talk about eating his flesh and his blood to get his life in us on a regular basis because everything hangs on that. Everything, all of God's relation to the world, all of who God is and God for us is centered in this person, Jesus Christ. And we waste our lives if we thumb our nose at Him. 
Now, that should make us at the same time incredibly confident because God has linked his very being to you, but also very humble. Our confidence should border on outrageous so that we can face anything, absolutely anything, without any fear, without any anxiety. Because if God were to abandon us, he would stop being God, and he will not do that. Face anything. Think about all the people who stared death and torture and imprisonment in the face and seemingly mocked it for the sake of Jesus. I am endlessly fascinated by these people. What they can say in those moments. If you don't know anything about them, just read a little history. It used to only be in Fox's Book of Martyrs. That's the only place we could find it. Now it's all over the internet. Just Google Martyrs for Christ and just start reading. How do they do it? I think about the two Margarets. Do you know about them? 17th century Scotland. The King of England was at war with the Scottish Covenanters who had covenanted with Jesus to be the head of the church. And the king said, no, I'm the head of the church, and you will give me allegiance as the head of the church, or you will die. And many of them did, including Margaret McLaughlin, who was an elderly widow, and Margaret Wilson, who was merely an 18-year-old. Even Margaret Wilson's parents had complied with the king's laws, but she refused. She was a rebellious teenager. Because she believed she would betray Jesus and did not want to be an idolater. So you know what they did? They tied the two Margarets to stakes and they placed them out in the ocean at low tide. And they put the elderly Margaret out further and the younger closer to shore so that she could watch the elderly Margaret die and perhaps recant. And as the waters came in and they overwhelmed Margaret McLaughlin, Margaret Wilson died singing Psalm 25, 7. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. For the sake of your goodness, you have done all of this, Lord. My salvation, my life, everything is in your hands. Teenager, how, how does a teenager have that sort of fortitude. Complete confidence that God has given everything, his very being to us. He will never deny himself, so he will never deny us either. Isn't it remarkable how little we are able to endure in life? What does it say about us what does it say about what we believe about God? 
and his work for us in Christ. What do you get anxious about? What causes frustration and anger to get the best of you? What sorts of thoughts pull the curtain of depression down over your mind and heart? Really, what have we endured? St. Paul has endured more, Jesus more than that. And his message to us in this text is God is so committed to you, he would have to stop being God to abandon you. And we're in a panic and paralyzed if we lose the slightest bit of control in our lives. So when your negative emotions control you, and when that sin wraps its tentacles around you again, and you mess up over and over and over, and when you look at your life and you feel like a failure, this is the truth that has to ring in your ears. God has chosen to be your God in Christ. And he's determined that you will be his child. And he holds your life just like he holds his own. Full confidence. Now this doesn't mean all our questions are answered, does it? In a sense, the truth that God has elected us deepens the mystery. Greater knowledge brings greater questions, and I'm sure you thought of them as we read through that text. Like, who exactly does get predestined? Does God destine everyone to be in his family? May I implore you gently? Please don't get so caught up in those curiosities that you miss the grand and glorious truth of this text. We're tempted to hear this mind-blowing news about God's elected love and then flatten out the mystery so that there's no question left unanswered. We want to say, we've detected gravitational waves, so now we know everything. But in a real sense, the mystery has now deepened. We apprehend the mystery, but we can't fully comprehend it. It's too far beyond our finite. See, this text isn't here to move us to complete understanding of how God elects in love and still loves the whole world, or how he predestines and yet we have free will, or how he dies for the world and some still reject his salvation. That's not the point. Paul doesn't elaborate on that. The point of Paul's song of praise in Ephesians 1 is here to move us to a place of wonder and deep, deep comfort. To a place of praise because God has lavished His grace on us. That little orienting phrase that repeats itself in this text, to the praise of His glory, shows up regularly. To the praise of His glory. It shoots us to the sky, full of amazement, and it keeps us grounded in humility that God has blessed us in ways that we could never bless, bless ourselves. And that's the kind of life we all want to do, right? 
Several years ago, I was struck with the juxtaposition of two memorial services held in the same week. One was for a uh, slain police officer. And after a very long ceremony, three hours, everyone walked away with a profound lack of hope. The spirit was sort of just, this man was good, we loved him, he's gone, now we move on. It was very sad. The other service was held for an elderly Christian woman, largely unknown, who had struggled silently for years with illness. The contrast between her service and the former could not be more striking. Her family, including her husband, her son, her daughter, her daughter-in-law, her three grandchildren, brother and sister-in-law, all stood up and joyfully spoke of not only her life, but of the rock-solid, unwavering hope that they have for her now, even though she is gone. There was total peace, full confidence in God, and complete humility that it was God who had done it all for her. All of that came through so plainly, so powerfully. So much so that those family members, if you can imagine this, had the courage and strength to stand up and sing multiple songs as a family, hymns of praise to God in thankfulness for her life. What a difference. And what was the difference? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for the adoption to sunset, sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given. Thanks be to God.